Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Mental Insights Podcast with your host, Brennan Catulli. We are here today for episode number 28 with Deb Morgan. Deb has personal experiences through childhood trauma, mental health challenges, and drug addiction. Deb speaks about what she faced throughout these years and the steps she took in order to seek out the resources and support necessary to move forward after these challenges arose within her life. Deb offers a true and honest perspective of what it's like to face such challenging issues in the world today and in a time where resources and support were not offered. I hope you all find great value within this episode with Deb as she explains more about her steps moving forward and how she is living a healthy life today. So thank you all for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. So thank you, Deb Morgan, for being here today on the Mental Insights Podcast. It's truly a pleasure to have you on and we're going to be dissecting a lot about your personal experiences within mental health and drug addiction and I think we'll have tons to share and to really see a different perspective of you know what you faced and how you've overcome such such challenging issues that a lot of people face today to begin the episode it's really what I like to ask a lot of my guests is you know, when did you first become aware of mental health? And, you know, it could have even been before you personally experienced an issue, but really, when did this come uh, to your own awareness within your life today? Well, I think I, I finally um, got people to tell me what I had when I was like 30. But really, I look back now on my life as I write it and I started out with this when I was extremely young. Um, there'd be the, the manias uh, literally, um, you know, just off the wall, taking all my clothes out of the closet, put them over here. I mean, just stuff that would, you know, kids just wouldn't normally do just out of having way too much energy. And, so then I realized that when I got to be a teenager, um, you know, I, I started drinking at, at probably the age 13. Well, drinking kind of slowed me down a little, you know, but it never made me go completely quiet. You know what I mean? It just sort of kind of made that middle part for me. So that was the first thing that I started with. So when I got to rehab, and we'll get there, but when I got to rehab, um, it was pills that got me there. Um, I was extremely smart, good at my job, and of course I picked a job in the mortgage business. Had to be in the busiest business, you know, where you have to work 10 hours a day and seven days a week, you know, I mean, it couldn't have been just a normal business. And then I had two kids on top of that. So, you know, I just, there was never enough for me, you know, to keep going, but then I would fall into depression, you know, so I would go way up and maybe stay for a little while, 
and then I'd go way down. So the downs were were bad. I know um, suicide attempt, you know, stuff like that. And so I just I was not well for a long time. But no one ever told me what I had until I was 30 and got into rehab. And then they finally said to me, you know, we think that you have um, bipolar disorder. In fact, we're, we're positive of it and anxiety disorder and, you know, everything else. And I had to have them explain it to me. And when they explained it to me, I still didn't pick up on the fact that I probably had it at a really young age, you know. So, you know, at that point back in, this is 1992 or three, um, you know, mental health, mental health was something that, you, there was a huge stigma behind it. You know what I mean? You could, you didn't talk about it, you know. And in my family, which was the most dysfunctional thing on earth, you, were weak if you had an issue. And so I think that's the first time that I realized I had it, that somebody told me that I had it. Definitely. Thank you for sharing that, Deb. It definitely puts into awareness what I think a lot of people have faced within this issue of, of mental health. And, you know, 30 years to then finally realize something that you've been experiencing for so long can can cause a lot of you know behavioral and just i mean mental challenges in and of itself because it it really you you don't have any of the resources and support to offer any any benefit towards yourself and it's definitely something that i think a lot of people struggle with because of the stigma that you spoke about and you know for your own experience was it just the stigma within, you know, your family that caused you to not even be diagnosed when you were younger? Can you, can you speak about what was kind of the, the terms that came into play within your younger life or knowing that you had these, you know, manic episodes, but was it, what was kind of the overall factor to change you to, to seek out the diagnosis and the help? Was it just being put into rehab, you know, what, speak, speak throughout that process of, of how that change was to, to really make that step because seeking out the, the resource and you know, the support from someone else is a, a big step in and of itself because of how prominent the stigma is today. Right. Well, you know, it's, this is going to sound really bizarre, but this is exactly how it happened. And, uh, I was married, I had two kids, and I was watching the movie on Patty Duke, Patty Duke Aston, and the fact that she struggled with bipolar disorder. And so they did a, they did a story on her life. And I watched the, the movie, and, and the whole way through the movie, I was like, that's me. You know, that's me. And that's me. And I kept thinking, oh my God, you know what I mean? Like there's something there. There's a there there and I don't know what it is. So even though my husband wasn't real supportive at the time, which we no longer are married is for a lot of reasons, but 
um, he, we went and saw a uh, psychiatrist and he put me on Prozac because that's what every got, everybody back in the 90s got put on Prozac. You know, if you had a depression, okay, Prozac. And so he put me on Prozac and told me that I had uh, clinical depression which was not the right, you know, thing that I had. I, I was not clinically depressed. I was up and down, up and down, up and down. And, you know, back then they didn't really know. I mean, it took more than just one session or two sessions to be able to figure that out. And so I kept going to a psychiatrist, but that was the very first time that I actually physically felt like I was watching myself on TV. And that is exactly what got me to go, was, was watching her and the way that she would go so far up and then so far down. And it was the weirdest thing to sit there and watch things that you did and realize it. I think that was... It was something I won't ever forget. So I went out and bought her book, literally. And uh, actually, I sent her an email. Um, and I, as, when we finally got a computer to send an email. And um, I told her, you know, you're the reason that I actually started thinking about getting help. And I got an answer back. And she was the nicest lady ever, you know. But it was just funny because she said that she gets so many of those, you know, telling her how people would see that and or read the book and realize. And I think sometimes just having the star factor, whether on the, the TV, um, I think that makes a big difference. You know what I mean? Definitely. No, that's that's truly remarkable. It's I think that is what's so awesome about people who, you know, have that platform to be able to do that because it shows you that no matter, you know, the fame, the fortune, we're all experiencing, you know, similar issues. And the fact that she's able to share her story and you can see yourself within her life is, it's incredible because that changes the course of your life. That changes the way that you, you sought out help you, you know, change how you live your life, which is truly remarkable that just that story can, can change the course of, you know, how you think and see yourself, which is so awesome to hear. And hopefully that continues to happen through anybody who has that platform to, you know, share their story and people can relate in order to see that, you know, reaching out is, is, is what you need to do. And, and it's not a scary thing. You know, it's definitely something that takes a lot of work and a lot of step, and it's definitely not the easiest route, but it's, it's something that we need. And, you know, through a lot of, you know, through a lot of work and healing there, there is a, a positive light throughout it. And I think that's definitely a great example to share. For a lot of people, it definitely seems like uh, the childhood, you know, experiences is where a lot of, you know, trauma or a lot of challenges can, can rise uh, from. 
within your own life, you know, can you share about how uh, childhood trauma can cause, you know, whether it's emotional trauma, whether it's, um, you know, behavioral development issues, how, how can a traumatic experience such as, you know, an abuse or just an experience with someone else impact the way that our mind works throughout later years within our life? Well, I think the story, my story for my life, um, of course, is different than everyone else's. But um, I was born in a family where it was more like a conspiracy. You know, Um, there was collusion within my family. And what had happened was my mom had me, but then my grandmother adopted me. And from that point forward, it moved me in the pecking order to a different spot. So I was now not the oldest of my siblings that would come later. And I was the only one who was given away. Now, my mother had it, and she, she not the mother, not my grandmother that raised me, but my real mother had bipolar disorder, and she had dysphoric mania. And basically, that's the opposite of good mania. That's the bad one. And then she'd get the good mania. Um, But in my life, there was, my grandmother was a cop. She was a deputy sheriff. You would have thought she would have watched these things closer or that she would have seen some kind of sign, you know. And they always said that I was high strung. That was the word they used. But... There was molestation within my family, my, you know, one of my friends' brothers. Um, There was a lot of things that happened in my life that that didn't have to happen. But I think, you know, now looking back into the 60s and 70s, people did not listen. They, you didn't go to your parents very often, you know, and especially if they weren't the kind of parents who were open um, to, to talking about anything, you know, you were already the black sheep. You didn't want to move it in any further, but what it causes is anger. It causes this anger and wanting to lash out. And even after you find out and know that you have some sort of depression, it doesn't change the road that you're going to take before you actually find out what the real problem is. And I think from day one, the worst, I mean, the only thing they could have done to me that would have been worse than what they did was take me and throw me across a four lane highway. You know what I mean? Literally that was, and I have a baby picture of one on one side of me and one on the other side of me holding me. That was my life. That would be my life. My grandmother would put me in that home knowing that she was abusive my whole childhood into my teenage years. And I hated her. I had so much hate and resentment. And so I think that, that yes, definitely my life played a huge part. Now, there are people who have good lives and good families, and they still end up, you know, going to drugs, finding out they have a mental problem. It doesn't disclude you from, you know, having it. 
but definitely uh, it, it breaks your soul at, at some point, you know. Thank you for sharing that. And it's, it's definitely something that, you know, you can't just move past and just forget about. It's something that you have to face and deal with and, you know, go through the healing process. So, you know, for anyone out there that has experienced something such as an abuse or a traumatic experience, how, you know, what are, what are your, what are your steps forward in terms of moving past that and, you know, making those positive steps forward after that experience? You know, it did obviously take you a while to have that support system and have, you know, that clarity and healing process within your life. But, you know, for someone that hasn't sought out the support yet, can you share a little bit in terms of what the process is in terms of the healing afterwards through a situation such as yourself of what you experienced? Uh, you know, I think it's, it's a hard situation. I mean, the question about that is so, you know, varied depending on the person and what they might be going through now and not knowing. But the one thing that I have found out is we talk a lot about drug addiction. We talk a lot about gateway drugs. We talk a lot about, you know, is pot a gateway? You know, everybody's worried about a gateway drug. And one of the things, and I posted it the other day, it was so perfect. You know, people, somebody asked me um, for the book I'm going to be in, if I thought that pot was a gateway drug. And I basically said, I don't believe in gateway drugs because drug addiction is a disease of the soul. So what happens to people is when you're in that, you're in that bubble of mania and depression, you're, you're not thinking about the fact that you're having mania or depression because you know you're depressed, but you blame it on something. And you know you're you don't know you're in a mania, but you know this feels great. This is a high, and I just want to ride this one out. You know, maybe I'm fine. I'll get better, whatever. And maybe I don't have a problem. You know, I don't have a problem. That's one of the usual thing that happens is, and people will quit taking any medication if they do seek out help. And that is not the right way to handle mental illness because it's not going to go away. It's a, it's a brain disorder. You know, it's, it's the lack of serotonin and the lack of dopamine. And it's, it's something that you, you know, you have to be able to see. And it's really hard. It's almost like a family member has to see it. But you have to be willing to look at it like everything. You, you know, you may go screaming and fighting you know, to the mental health center when your parents are trying to help you and they don't have any control because you're 23. But I wouldn't have listened to anybody when I was 23. I wouldn't have listened to anybody when I was 28. So when I got to the point of finding out, I still wasn't listening. I still wasn't thinking that I had a mental disorder. I always thought that it was a I never really thought, I just thought it was me, you know, something was wrong with me or something wasn't wrong with me. When you get into drugs, then nothing's wrong with me. 
you know, I'm perfect and I'm not getting help because first of all, I like the drug and second of all, I feel fine. So it's really hard to get someone to notice it. Um, there's not enough support. They don't talk about it enough in the right terms. And there's not enough support out there to get people to go somewhere to make people feel comfortable enough to go somewhere where they don't feel like they're being stigmatized constantly, you know, that they're in this bubble and everybody's watching them, you know, like a rat, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, taking, you know, tests and stuff on you. And that's how you feel, you know, if you don't admit it yourself or find out. Definitely. It's, it, it's such an important, you know, concept to speak about because it's, you know, it, it's such an overarching issue within the field today is, you know, that stigma and that support system. And especially for a lot of people, you know, the trauma or this abuse happens at a young age. And like you're saying, you're not completely aware and you think it's kind of just the norm because when you experience something as a child, you just assume that it's, that it's normal and then it changes your behavioral and thought patterns and you think you think it's just normal and it's just who you are for for so many years and takes that you know awareness or just that change in your you know chemical process within your brain to make you realize that there is something you know there is something better or there is a there's a change within your brain that can bring you to a different light. And I think that's what's so hard to, you know, to share the message to, to youth today, because it happens, the, the trauma happens at such a young age where it's, it's a constant behavioral or thought pattern for 10, 15, 20, 30 years within a lot of people's lives, which, mm -hmm. you know, to, to open up and to share that message to them and make them see that they need the help is so hard and it's such a challenge for many people today. And I think that's something that we need to continue to work on is, you know, trying to make it comfortable, trying to make an environment or a support system where people are okay to reach out. And that's something that I think the field struggle with struggles with a lot because Definitely. yeah, there, there's, there's so many people that won't seek it out because of that stigma, because maybe they don't think, that there's a issue or a challenge that they're facing or they just don't want to see themselves in in that category or in that you know area that people you know perceive as as a different person but really you, it's something. you know you, you almost get numb you know to the trauma uh you've lived it your whole life and People then come up to you later when you're talking about your own story and they say, you were so strong, I don't know how you made it. You make it because you have to. You, you know, you learn it. That's how you're brought up. That's how you learned how to live. And so it's extremely hard for somebody in that kind of situation who... I've talked to people in AA. I've talked in front of people in AA quite a bit and over the years. And, you know, I don't go to meetings as often as I used to because I've been doing this now for 24 years and my husband and I met at AA. So it's kind of like we can have a meeting here and the other person understands, you know. 
but um, usually you'll talk to someone who is on medication, and so many are, so many are, and you'll find out that they didn't know either that they had a mental problem when they came in and what they had to go through, through, you know, being an alcoholic or an addict or whatever, how all that road that they had to travel before they ever figured it out. That maybe it was just, if they could have just fixed that, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda kind of thing. Exactly. No, it, and it, it takes so many years for, you know, people to become aware of that. And, you know, as you were saying that, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, the way just that our society is in terms of, you know, when you're in your youth, you have the physical checkups, you have these, you know, these resources where people check on you physically, but in terms of mental health check-ins, like, shouldn't, shouldn't that be something that we're promoting? Like, shouldn't we have, even if it's, you know, into adults, even if it's in young adults, like, why aren't we checking in on how people, even if it's just a quick 15 minute talk with someone, you know, there's, there's so much in terms of these, these, you know, just resources that aren't available for people, especially at their youth, because when someone experiences something as a child, that becomes a routine behavior, that becomes a pattern, and then they think it's going to be fine for, you know, 30 years, and it's just who they are, and they can't change that. And I believe that's something that we need to change. Because there's... Definitely. Yeah. there's no there's no just common norm in terms of you know everybody has mental health and it's something that we all need to focus on and you know we prioritize physical health and physical injuries in terms of healing so much but when you look on the mental side it's either you're born normal or you just can't fix it and that's the way that society plays it as but you know People as a child face such traumatic issues through, oh, yeah. especially today. Exactly, and it, why we why we aren't you know just providing a comfortable environment for children to you know speak to us, and because for a lot of people it just takes someone to listen in order for them to see that there is more than you know what they're facing because. For a lot of people, they don't even share what they went through or what they experienced, and that bottles up within them. And that's why, like you were saying, you know, drugs are a great source of a pain suppressor for a lot of people. Because oh, yeah. It makes them feel like they're worth it, or it makes them feel like they aren't in that environment, or they aren't in that 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 pain source um, that they experienced. And you know, that's why. I think these, these, you know, ideas, these topics are connected and they're, they're so intertwined throughout a lot of people today because drugs are an answer for a lot of mental health challenges. And it, it's something that I think we're just starting to become aware of. And it, it's something that we need to take control over because you see children experience a trauma and when they're young it's it's resorting to drugs right away and that becomes a habit and for a lot of people mm-hmm. it, it causes severe harm and 
you know, that's something that I noticed within myself as well as, you know, I was abusing drugs due to a, a trauma and the experience that I faced and such as yourself did as well. And countless people around me have done that as well. And it's, you start to realize that more and more people experience it, but it takes the environment and society now where people are becoming more accepting and comfortable to share their story. Mm -hmm. But within when you were facing this, you were saying it, it wasn't talked about. So like it's unfathomable to all the people that have experienced this and continue to experience it today. Well, and I think that, you know, one of the problems today, especially today, I, I don't know, you know, when I was young, there was a lot more married parents, you know, like most of my friends, there was a mom, a dad, you know, not that they were any less dysfunctional, but, but there was a family unit there. And so you know, when I went to my friends, I always wanted to go there because there was always a family unit, you know. But the problem is, is that, and it, and it happened with me, was, and it still happens. I don't, I don't understand why it still happens after we went through all this, you know. But parents will, first of all, parents are not the people that the kid's going to talk to. Even if the parent tells them, I'm here. I'll talk. It, it's not nine times out of 10. That's not going to be the person they'll talk to. Yeah. And then the parents get upset because the kid won't talk to them. Well, that's because they're their parents. You know, there's always that thing where kids don't want to talk, but then parents also can make themselves seem and won't talk about the problems that they had. And there we go with a perfect parent and a kid with a problem and that doesn't go together. And so if we are to address the problem with kids and children and, you know, having, giving them some space to talk in, not everybody's going to take their kid to, um, you know, like a psychiatrist or a, a psychologist. Um, and, you know, kids aren't stupid either they know what's going on. And so, you know, I think that what we need to do is have peers, you know, like kids that are a little bit closer to, to that kid's age, maybe somebody who went through it, maybe somebody who can understand it or just be there to support those kids. We need those and they aren't there. And I think that makes it so much harder because you have nobody to go to now, my kids, they grew up basically in AA. And I was probably way too honest, <laughs> you know. But I told my kids, don't go down the road I went because this is what's going to happen. And they stayed away from it. But it wasn't because they came to me. It was because I went to them. And that's another difference. If a parent goes to their kid and stays in touch with them and lets them know, you know, hey, I've been here, you know, and, and this is what can happen. And truly, I'm not judging you, you know. And sometimes they can open up that line that way. 
but if not, and if the parent is acting like they have never done anything or they're not that easy to talk to, you can forget it. I mean, it's unfortunate, but they're not going to be that person. Yeah, it's it's true. And those are great points. I, I definitely think that the age difference causes a lot of the issues because children don't want to go and, and share what they've experienced with older adults because it's, I mean, it's just, the the fact of the matter is they, they don't want to reach out and they don't feel comfortable in that environment. I definitely think it's got to be a younger audience to, to touch and, and share that message because that's definitely one of the best ways to do it. And obviously as well, parental figures are a, a great factor within just how a child sees, you know, whether it's substances or whether it's mental health, that's, I mean, that's your first tangible opportunity to to teach children about the harms and the effects of you know what these could take place within someone's life and within drugs i think they have you know a lot of a lot of opportunity to cause harm within relationships so oh within, yeah <laughs> within yourself you know what impact did did substances whether it was drugs whether it was alcohol have within your relationships and speak about you know how harmful they can be to obviously not only yourself but the relationships that you have with other people around you well i think you know when i was young let's say you know 18 you know going out partying every night every single night and drinking everything that you could possibly drink um you know, you ended up sleeping with people continuously and it didn't mean anything. And you'd get, I, I would get in blackouts and wake up at somebody else's house and have no idea where I was or get up and wake up and my car was gone. I mean, you know, it's, that's how bad it got. And then when I got married, I had no idea. I wasn't raised around a father figure at all. And I had no idea how to live in the house with a man and be married to him. And so that was harsh. But when I started getting on drugs, it was, I, I had been drinking to that point, but now I didn't drink every night. I had two kids. I tried to be the good mother. You know, I think I, I always say I was a good mother and I was a good mother because I never beat my kids and I always talked to my kids and I tried, you know, I did everything a mom was supposed to do. But for me, I wasn't there for me. And so I couldn't have been a hundred percent there for them, you know, and, and that's hard to admit when you first have to take a look at that, you know, that's really hard. But when I started doing drugs, um, it was because I actually had a surgery and I sound like the broken record where they tell you this, but I had a doctor at that point who never took me off of Percocet. And after the Percocets, after they finally did take me off the Percocet, they just took me off. You know, there was no weaning off or right, anything like that. And that was the drug that I felt nor I thought I was normal with, you know, it wasn't alcohol or anything. It was that particular 
drug that made me feel like I had a normal. And so I started writing my own prescriptions. Now this is the, this is the length that you will go to do what you have to do to survive. And I started writing my own prescriptions. They used to have prescription pads in all the doctor's offices and I would just take one and being extremely street smart because that's where I'd been my whole life, you know, my whole teenage life. I started writing prescriptions and I don't know, probably over a year and a half period, I must have written in six different counties and probably, oh, I'm sure over a hundred, I'm positive over a hundred of them. And I was up to 110 perks at a week. That's enough to probably be, you know, not good. And uh, I finally, I got caught. And, you know, if it, there's always one person that comes along. And they're not in your family, usually. And it's that one person that you don't know. And they don't know you. But for some reason, they take a gamble. And I had an officer, the one that was interviewing me for a writing sample to see if it was me who wrote the prescriptions. And I could write in 20 different ways, you know. And I, I just told him, at that point, I was just done. I was just tired. And I just needed to tell someone, you know. And I told him, you don't even need to take this. I, I'm, I, you don't need to take it. It's me, and I don't know what to do. And at that point, he allowed me. He he worked it out so that I could go to rehab, and I could, at the end of the day, if I did everything they wanted, the UAs and all that, and the work and the counseling. And this was like a two and a half year process. If I could do all that, which I did. Uh, because I was ready. I was done. I wasn't doing it anymore. And I I haven't drank since. I don't drink. I don't like alcohol, you know. Um, not. I don't mind. If people want to have a drink, it doesn't bother me. But you have to get used to how to be around people who drink. And um, so during that time, then I ended up going to rehab. And then rehab, if they break you. I mean, you're already broken, you think, but they just take the mirror and drop it on the floor. And in a million pieces, you're shattered. It took me five days before they could even get through that. And I, I'm surprised it didn't take longer. Some people never made it, you know, through that process. But I, I was always one of those people who just, I... I just could adapt once I got trusting. And when they threw that on the floor, then I, I was responsible for picking up the pieces that were the good ones and keeping them and reassembling myself. And with help, I, I was able to do that. But I would have just been getting out of prison like this year if I would have gotten all the time that they could have given me. And all it really boiled down to was I started 
taking a drug that I had no idea how it would affect me and I had a mental disorder and I couldn't, you know, and it could have killed me because you keep taking more and more and more. And that's where the dangerous part is, is if you have a mental issue and you can't face anything and there's nobody around to support you because those people aren't your friends out there. You know, they're just not, um, we think they are. And, and they're not, they'll drop us in a second if we quit doing what we were doing before, you know. Exactly. Thank you for sharing that, Deb. I, I appreciate that, that raw and honest uh, approach of what you faced because it, it puts into perspective of what a lot of people are facing. Being the one topic of, you know, having a prescription drug for themselves and for a lot of people, you know, they're cut off and it's definitely not the, the correct way to go about it because once, once you have this drug in your system to completely cut it off, you, <coughs> excuse me, gain that, you know, dependency on that drug. And that's why it's, it's not something that you can just completely cut off. It's something that you have to continue having within your system. And like you're saying, you know, to, to wean off that is, is the correct approach in how a doctor should be doing that because, you know, your body and not only your mind become dependent on that feeling, on needing that help um, in order to, to cope and to, to move throughout that process. And your mind, you know, people don't realize, they think, well, if I don't do the pills and I move to pot, then I'll be fine. Well, you, you will still be a drug addict possibly because you were one before. So probably you will, but the brain doesn't care what you put in it. The brain knows you're putting something in it. And so that's where, you know, people don't understand that the weaning off part, which I got in rehab, was so important because the way they did it, I still went through withdrawal. But Percocet withdrawal is real close to heroin withdrawal. And if heroin withdrawal is worse than that, I'm out. You know what I mean? I did not want to go through that. I watched people go through it and have to go to the, you know, hospital part across the hall. It was just, it was bad. And, um, you know, since then we, I've lost people, you know, to drugs that I've known or, or alcohol. Um, and it's just a war. It's, it's a worthless death, you know, it really is. Definitely. It's, it's terrible to see because, you know, a lot of people aren't fortunate enough to have the ability to, you know, see the other side and they become dependent on these drugs and in turn, it either leads to an overdose or a suicide. You know, there's, there's not a lot of good opportunities that can come out of, you know, a physical dependency on on some you know very strong and powerful drugs um you know a lot of these pills today that people become can become very dependent on and 
we were speaking about, you know, how drug addiction can change the way your relationships and environment are. And then I think on the flip side, there can be a, a big factor within your mental health in terms of the environment that you're in. So, you know, can you speak about what role that the environment that you're in can, you know, have within your own mental health and even your use within substances? Because, you know, when you grow up, you have a family that can directly change the way that you live your life, but as well after that, the relationships around you have a big part. So, you know, what role does the environment play within not only your mental health, but also the way that you use and can abuse substances? Well, I think, you know, um, it's interesting because when I started, you know, rehab was a huge turning point for me. It changed everything. It changed um, you know, dropping all the anger and it, and it took a long time, but dropping the anger and not being judgmental and doing all the things that you don't want done to you, you know, and trying to make amends to people, which that's a huge one, <laughs> especially since you can't find everybody. But I met my husband, um, and we've been married 22 years. We've been together 25 that's a big difference than being married twice over a four-year period each time. Do you, do you know what I mean? Um, so I, once I got into rehab, once I was able to get myself stabilized and continue with people around me that were sick, but trying to get healthy, you know, actively trying. And he had been in AA for 10 years. And, you know, we were sitting in a meeting when this is, this is the weirdest story. It's going to sound like I've lost my mind. We were sitting in an AA meeting and I just, somebody said, you know, does anybody have anything to say? Usually that's what they do, you know, give you an opportunity, right? And this voice started talking, deep voice, you know, I don't know why it caught my attention and I looked up to see who it belonged to. You know what I mean? Cause I'd never heard it before. And it was, um, this man who I thought, you know, he looks like such a nice man. I said, I swear to God, this is the one that I'll end up with, you know, spending my life with. And I don't have a clue why. And we were on our way home. My daughter by then was probably, I don't know, nine or 10 or so. And I told her, I said, I think I met, you know what I mean? I literally told her and, and we did, you know, and we've been together for 22 years. It's a love story. And it, it's a story about people who were sick and were able to get well and were able to stay with each other and be so close and do everything together. Um, but some people don't find that. They actually lose that. You know, they might have had a good marriage before. Um, the one I had before wasn't. So every single thing that happened in my life, whether it was the first marriage or childhood or a teenage year or another marriage, those things were all during the time that I was sick. I mean, really, that I was either growing and developing and ended up having issues that I didn't know I had, 
or it was at the period after that when things changed. So for the first half of my life, basically, everything was, you know, foggy, blurry, the lines were blurred, everything wasn't right. It just wasn't me, it wasn't right. And the second half has been a completely different story. And I wish people could see that, you know, on, even if, some people are, our attention spans are so small anymore. But I wish someone could just see it on a screen, you know, where they could understand what your life can be. But you have to do the work. And I never wanted to do any work before I got caught. And then I had to do the work. And so when your life depends on doing the work because you're going to lose your kids or lose your life and lose your freedom, um, then it's easier, I think, for you to maybe, I don't know, somehow figure out how to get your life straightened out. But it seems to kind of come with the territory. You know, you get yourself involved in a different kind of life with different kind of people. And then you realize, what was I doing? You know, who was I? And eventually you figure it out. And, you know, you hopefully you talk about it. You know, hopefully you're out there talking about it. Definitely. Mm-hmm. The change in perspective, I think, is is so important because, you know, like you're saying, for, you know, for 30 years, you kind of, it's, it's like a fog. It's like that you're not completely aware or conscious. And once you have that change in perspective, you think, was that really me? Like, I, that, that's who I truly was. And, you know, for a lot of people, it's a completely different change of just who they are and the person that, you know, they want to be. And I think it's, you know, hopefully there's room for, like you were saying, to be able to show that contextual change, because if someone's able to see that, that tangible piece of, you know, the change within your life, they can see that there is hope and there is, you know, uh, the availability to change who they are, which I think AA definitely does a, a great deal within that, because just by sitting in one meeting, you can see how drastic someone's life has changed through, you know, through an experience or many experiences that you can relate to. And you can see that you were in the same position of, which hopefully we can try to bring that into the, you know, into the communities of drug addiction, into the communities of mental health and try to show that, that frame of mind to everybody, because it's definitely something that I think offers the you know the hope and the just the the availability that people can see that there is there is a new light that there is something that is worth fighting for which definitely is something that a lot of people need for yourself for yourself there was a a big you know a big change and i think it changed a lot of how you how you saw yourself and what you were focusing on throughout your daily tasks. And I think you can speak very well to this topic in terms of, 
you know, what importance, what role did nutrition play within your own life and within, you know, how your mental health was, um, you know, changing throughout a lot of these, you know, big life events throughout your life. So how did nutrition play such a vital role within your life, within your own life and mental health? You know, I, <laughs> I don't know when, when I was growing up, we, the food was like, I can't even tell you, we did not eat well when I was growing up at all. And then when I got grown up, it seemed like the one thing that I had a real strong relationship to was flour and sugar. Anything with flour and sugar in it, you know, and butter, that was the way I went. And I mean, my weight was up and down. And I think the one thing about nutrition that played a huge role in the part from when I was 18 till, you know, probably 25, 26, um, that portion of my life there, before I went to rehab, when I got to rehab, I was diagnosed with anabolemorexia uh, is what they called it. Because I would go four or five days without eating, and then I would eat like either a bunch or not, but I lost a huge amount of weight. I was I weighed 110 and I'm 5'7. It was just it was bad. It did not look well on me. And that kind of nutrition issue for me played a huge role because that was all part of the old addiction starting process. And the reason that it wasn't a pill then or alcohol, and people forget this part, is food is an addiction. It can be an addiction. Gambling. But food you have control over. You have control when your life is completely out of control. What can you control? You can control what you eat. And so I controlled what I ate through not. So it was, it was one of those, basically I was anorexic most of the time, you know, and the bulimia part wasn't like a lot of people. You know, but I ended up in the hospital three times because of it. So then you move over into a different part of your life and you think things are going to be better. And here we are again with, you know, you're eating okay, you get pregnant, you have a baby, the whole thing. And you don't think about nutrition back then. We just, we didn't. There wasn't that many things out there. You know, everybody was using flaxseed. That was the big deal, you know. And so um, I, until I got fibromyalgia, then I started realizing what a big role nutrition had in my body. So now it's been a completely different road for the last three years. And I've had it for t 10 years. But it takes a long time for you to realize that food is, you know, can be a huge deal. So I don't know, except I do know that between that period of time, it had a lot to do with my addictions. It was the fact that I could control it.
Thank you for that, Deb. It definitely puts into perspective, you know, the, the, the change throughout your own interpretation of, you know, the importance of nutrition and why it's so vital in terms of just, you know, your physical and mental health. It, it has a, a huge change within how you can think, behave, and act. And it definitely plays such a vital role in, you know, many people's lives, not even if they're facing fibromyalgia or facing, you know, mental health challenges. It's something that we need to focus on and need to, you know, have as a priority within our life. For my last question that I like to ask my guests, it's to pretty much put into uh, your whole life story um, in in the interpretation that you're writing a book for your life. And Mm -hmm. The question that I want to ask you is to share uh, the title and the reason as to why um, one chapter um, within your life and give us, you know, a little glimpse into, you know, the importance behind that chapter. Um, And it could be, say, a lesson or experience that you had, or it could just be, you know, a profound change or a profound moment that you had within your life. Well, first of all, um, I was asked to be in a book um, that's coming out, done by um, the ex-producer of The Howard Stern Show. It's called um, Simply Amazing Women. So it's going to be me and eight or nine other women and part of our story. So that's coming out in November. That comes out before my book. Um, Mine will be called, is named Trapped. And it's been that way since the beginning. And I've never thought of any other name because it just goes with my life, basically. And so um, the one chapter in there that's going to be the most, and I'm, you can probably pick it out, but that's going to be the most prominent one. The, mo- the one that made all the changes and kept everything coming together is the one about addiction and the mental health piece. Because those two go together in my life, um, having to go, having to understand all that, and then having to accept the fact that I had a a mental disorder and then I couldn't get off medication. There was no getting off. And now I'm afraid after all these years of taking it, I would be afraid to not take it because I don't know what I would do. You know, would I go, I don't know. And, but you're, you get to be afraid of, of your own uh, mind at that point because you don't know how it would behave and you you don't want to be on anything because you don't know how that would react um, ironically I had to be on pain pills different ones but I still had to be on pain pills with the fibro for a period of years and I got off of them on my own not that it was a real accomplishment, you know, over the years, but it just showed the difference in how I had healed through the work and the years and, and the different lifestyle and then how I was so sick before. And so that, that piece of the book is a huge deal. I will talk about um, abuse and how I think that that had a bigger impact, and there's a more story there. Um, and I'll, of course, talk some about how I am now. 
but I think that's the, the biggest piece in that book. Thank you for that answer, Deb. I, I really appreciate it. And it puts into perspective of, you know, what's truly been most, you know, influential within your life. And I think it definitely offers such a great deal in terms of the transition that you've had and, you know, what you've been able to overcome throughout these years and in a time and place that there wasn't many resources out there and you were still able to fight through that, which I think is so commendable because, you know, I mean, thankfully nowadays we do have more resources coming out, but it's, it's still not talked about enough. It's still, we still have work to do within these fields and there's a lot of people suffering out there. And I'm so grateful that you were able to be on the mental insights podcast to share your story and share what you've been able to experience and overcome because there's a lot of people listening out there and there's a lot of people just out there in the world that are, have a lot to relate to your own experiences and to what other people have within the mental health and within the drug addiction field. And I hope, and I know that a lot of people will be able to relate to your own story and to be able to see why resources and support are so important to reach out and to, you know, seek. And it's something that can drastically change the course of their life. So I want to thank you for being on here and, and sharing your story. It was honestly such a pleasure to have you on and look forward to your book and we'll make sure to have all the links towards your work and we'll make sure to, you know, have a follow-up interview once this book comes out, because I think we'll have a lot more to share and to dissect within these fields and, I think everybody will love to hear more about, um, you know, your own story and we'll be able to, to share more about what the book tries to uh, encompass and dissect within these, you know, these vital fields. So thank you again, Deb. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.